0: Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm your host, Zoe Albion. On this podcast, we learn about recent discoveries of species that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We ask scientists how they found these new species and why they matter. We learn about what makes a new species and hear some behind-the-scenes stories along the way. So join us as we explore the biodiversity of our planet and the scientists who help us better understand it. Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm your host, Zoe Albion, and I'm here with Dr. Marshall Hadin, professor of biology at San Diego State University. He's here today to tell me about his paper published in the February 3rd edition of Zootaxa, in which he and his co-author described 10 new species of nesticus spiders from southern Appalachia. Welcome, Marshall. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks, Zoe. Thanks for having me.
0: So can you start off by giving us a little introduction to the genus Nesticus?
1: The genus Nesticus, uh, poorly known spiders, almost certainly never seen by anyone in the general public, and actually rarely seen by working arachnologists. So they're, they're spiders that like to live in kind of cool, dark places. They're called cave spiders or cave cobweb spiders. Most people know about Charlotte and Charlotte's Web, those are uh, orb weaving spiders. So these cave cobweb spiders are kind of in a bigger group that includes the, the orb weaving spiders.
0: Uh, where do they sit phylogenetically in relation to other spiders?
1: Yeah. So the orb weaving spiders are called the, they're in the family Araneidae. So then there's a bigger group of uh, a group of families called the araneoids and then the nesticids are in that group the araneoids it's it's kind of interesting they have a, a little comb on their uh, fourth leg and they used to be used to be thought to be closely related to cobweb spiders like uh, like black widows Therodeid spiders but it turns out that they're not they're kind of elsewhere in that in that larger group of araneoids So up in there, relatively derived, relatively derived spiders.
0: That's so interesting. And did you start off in this group or did you study others?
1: (laughs) Well, we don't have all day, but (laughs) (laughs) so I've been doing arachnology since uh, maybe the early 1990s when I started doing my PhD research. And uh, uh, I was kind of waffling about maybe struggling a, a little bit. Trying to figure out what I wanted to work on as a PhD student, and uh, I was interested in how species form—the the process of speciation—more uh, generally. So I kind of started off interested in scorpions or pseudoscorpions. Again, maybe floundering around a bit, but then I went to uh, I went to a meeting, uh, the American Arachnological Society meeting in uh, Mississippi that was in 92 or 93 somewhere in there and i saw a talk about a couple of of new species in the genus nesticus from southern appalachia and then i went back home and i and i did the interlibrary loan for the revision of that genus (laughs) a few months later that arrived and that was was a very exciting day for me (laughs) and then uh, kind of the rest is history that i i i studied uh the Appalachian group for my PhD and then I've gone on and and worked on many other spiders during my career but it's kind of interesting because this the Appalachian nesticus is really a kind of full circle for me I worked on that group you know 30 years ago or thereabouts and I've kind of worked on them slowly in the Time between, but I've worked and kind of spent most of my time on other spiders, but then I've come back and revised that group uh, recently.
0: This paper focuses on spiders collected in southern Appalachia. That's from southern West Virginia to central Alabama. Why do you think it's important to study Nesticus from this area?
1: Yeah, well, that that area is wonderful. It's a very, very uh, biodiverse region, the southern Appalachians, from from, for a temperate region that is uh, not a tropical region, uh, either north or south temperate region. It's one of the most biodiverse temperate regions in the world. It's a biodiversity hotspot. So those mountains include lots of salamanders, lots of other taxa, rich and, and endemic species. So Nesticus is, is found there, but Nesticus is otherwise, Nes- it's not as if Nesticus is just everywhere. In north america for example in fact you have to go to the southern appalachians to find nesticus and then you can't find them for example further west until you come to california or further south until you go to the highlands of mexico so there it's it's a it's a regional diversification that is in the southern appalachians but it's not found in other places of the united states so if I wanted to work in Nesticus in the East, I, I would have to go there. That's where, that's where this particular group has kind of radiated and diversified.
0: And why do you think that is?
1: It's because the Southern Appalachians, are, they're very unique in, in the sense that they're, they're mountains, but they're extremely ancient mountains, and they're, they're, they're not mountains that have been covered by glaciers in recent times. So, so there's been you know, millions and millions of years for species to accumulate in that landscape, but also the landscape itself is very uh, complex and diverse. There's lots of habitats, there's obviously lots of topographic complexity, that is, there's mountains and valleys and mountains and valleys and caves, so it's kind of a combination of time and availability of upland habitats, but also that topographic complexity and that, that leads to this species diversity.
0: Yeah, I, I've had the privilege of collecting in that area, and in addition to being absolutely gorgeous, it's full of life. And when you go to collect spiders, where are you looking? Actually, you know what, can you first start off by describing them to us? So who are you looking for, and then where are you looking?
1: Yeah, so it's a little uh, kind of small-bodied, relatively long-legged spider that. Uh, might cover with legs the size of a dime or if it's if it's larger might cover a an american nickel something like that they're not particularly large or particularly small they're kind of medium sized spiders they're kind of they're very elegant in their appearance their their legs are long and and dainty and and they make these beautiful kind of cobwebs and they hang upside down in those cobwebs so in caves, in particular, you can walk into a cave and you can just see the spiders right out in front of you, and, and it's this beautiful web, and the spider, like I say, is sitting inverted in that web, and there's you know water droplets on the web, et cetera. In the mountains, in the rock piles, it's kind of less. I mean, they're still very beautiful there, but you know, you're you're kind of mucking around in the rocks and flipping them over and such, so you don't really get to see to see the spiders sitting in their webs. Or in, in Southern Appalachia, you can find them and you know, obviously that region is rich in limestone caves. And the limestone caves are actually pretty, uh, an easy place, relatively speaking, to find them because you just walk into the cave and you look in the nooks and crannies and you can see their webs and, and there they are. But in the mountains, it's more challenging. In the mountains, you have to you, you have to look for kind of rocky canyons and caves, or they like to live in in, in the void spaces in a rock pile. So you're in a nice rock pile that, that's kind of in a shaded north-facing place, and then you dig down into the rock pile to find the spiders, yeah.
0: And if memory serves, there are other things that can live in those rock piles, too.
1: You know, I've never found a, something like a rattlesnake or anything. Certainly, I've done that a lot in the, in the western United States. I actually just did that recently, where I flipped a rock and there was a rattlesnake like six, six inches <laughs> from my face. But. oh no. <laughs> but that's never happened in Appalachia. There, I mean, there's there's some there's a scorpion species in southern Appalachia, but it, it's not really problematic. I, I actually, I've never found anything. I've never had any dangerous encounters with other animals in Appalachia. I've had dangerous encounters with the rock piles themselves, et cetera, but not not animals. <laughs>
0: Uh, as in like a rock slide or something like that,
1: yeah, if you're in a big pile of rocks, relatively large rocks, and you know you just have to be careful because you're you know you're moving the rocks and then sometimes they might want to fall onto you and such
0: a lot of um interesting skills that you need to collect cave spiders, it seems to me
1: well yeah, and it's it's a wonderful thing. It's actually you know finding when you when you flip a rock. In in kind of that that rich area, there's so many other f- interesting animals that live under there, and I, I'm I'm an arachnologist, so you flip a rock and you see all of these other interesting arachnids, and kind of seeing them actually got me quite interested in other types of arachnids like harvest harvesters, etc. But it's a it's it's a super rich environment. You, I mean, you could study the things that live under rocks in Southern Appalachia really forever.
0: <laughs> and you're collecting them by hand, right? Is, is there a reason that you couldn't do like a pitfall trap or something like that?
1: Well, you, you, could, you could do pitfall traps and some people actually have, but the issue there is that you would have to return back in time. And I, you know I did most of my studies from a distance where I would be in California and take a team to S- the Southern Appalachians and we would have to do a lot of collecting over a short period of time. So time was one thing. It's it's also the case that the pitfall traps, you know, setting a pitfall trap in a rock pile could be hard <laughs> and you you can set it in leaf litter and stuff and might find a few. But the the spiders themselves, they don't like to move around very much you know they're they're in their place and they're not they're not like wandering spiders so pitfall traps are not the best way but yeah you you know you flip rocks and and you you don't really hand collect them you might get a little a uh, little aspirator or a little tube that you can use to suck them up into the into the vial that you're interested you know where you collect them my son joined me on a few trips and uh We'd be working the rock pile and then he would come out with a tube full of ants just to kind of mess with me <laughs> so, <laughs> well we first we would collect these valuable cave spiders and then he would start collecting ants and then the ants would eat all of the cave spiders like, son what are you doing <laughs> stop that
0: sabotage
1: <laughs> total sabotage <laughs>
0: Your paper includes data from around 2,100 adult specimens, so maybe minus a few uh, lost to the ants, um, and and those include uh, 475 unique collecting events, uh, which is a tremendous amount of data. So where did all of this data come from?
1: Well, uh, you know, recently in time, there have been some devoted cave biologists working kind of further east in the area. Uh, you know the Tennessee Valley area, for example, on on the Cumberland Plateau, and they've collected a lot of a lot of nesticus. But all of the all of the montane nesticus, really, kind of from western North Carolina and surrounding regions. Those those came from field work that I was involved with with various people, including lots of students from SDSU over you know you know the last few decades. So the issue with Nesticus is that you, you can have species that are found in very small uh, areas, maybe a single mountain range or something. So, so really the idea is that you, you need to cover you need to cover all of your bases. You need to travel to all of those different places, really, to kind of try to to find all of them. And that that was the really the goal from the start was to try to find all of the species that live in the area so we would we would take these trips and it was it was a lot of hard work but a lot of obvious obviously also very fun and and beautiful we would get up in the morning and you drive to a a rock pile (laughs) and then you would work in the rock pile for a few hours and try to find some spiders and then you would drive to the next place so uh I was very thankful for my team uh, of, you know, again, mostly students, because we did that for days and days and days. You know, we would take like a three week trip and we would do the same thing every day. Just go to six or seven different places and and look for spiders. Really pretty wonderful. But, you know, (laughs) at the end, you were you were kind of exhausted. (laughs) We would have to take breaks in the middle, maybe go see some bluegrass music, something like that.
0: That sounds fun. Just to make sure you don't get too spidered out.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. (laughs) And you could get burnt out because, I mean, even though it was always beautiful, uh, it was hard in the end, but yeah, a lot of just literally thousands of hours of thousands of hours of just field time.
0: It's, it's really impressive. Um, and then at the end of it, you have these 10 new species. That's, are a really exciting achievement. They're very interesting species. So, so, tell us about the process of determining them and, and what you found.
1: Well, so these spiders have, uh, the males of these spiders have pretty fancy pedipalps. They use those pedipalps to transfer the sperm to the female, right? But on these pedipalps are all, all of these processes and sclerites and hooks and stuff. So, they're really wonderfully complex structures. So really what we did was we looked at all of the males first and tried to figure out kind of put the males into kind of morphologically distinctive piles, I guess, and kind of call those species initially. But then we also collected a lot of uh, DNA data to basically kind of confirm the patterns that we were seeing in the male morphology. Our species delimitation was was kind of integrative in that sense. combined studies of morphology with studies of DNA to formulate and test, and importantly, test our species hypotheses. We looked at the male morphology first, put specimens into piles, you know, where any single pile has a a male palpal morphology that kind of looks the same, and then you have another pile where that morphology is different, right? So you have all of these Kind of sets of morphologies, and you think that those are the species, and then you you do some some DNA analyses to see whether or not the kind of morphological species also uh, form groupings in the DNA in the DNA phylogeny.
0: Using all of this data, you described the new type specimens for um, an existing species, and you also provided a synonym. Uh, so those are. Processes that aren't always uh, highlighted, I feel, in taxonomy. Um, New species are a little more exciting, but they're they're incredibly important.
1: Yeah, so there were several species that were known only from females. So we found the males, for example, or they were known only from males, and we found the females. So we did that, and then there was one instance of a synonymy where we had to sync a couple of well, we had to. Sink one species into another existing species, so they had been described as two separate species, and our evidence suggested that they were instead a, a single species. It's it it, it was hard uh, to make that decision because because it's not perfectly clear cut, but uh, that's what the evidence suggests right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we we gained a good number of species, but we also lost one. <laughs> <laughs> that's how it is. I mean, you. That's what taxonomy is about, kind of making progress in that way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, To clarify, for people who might not be as familiar, um, when you designate a type specimen and you don't have the other other sex, how do you decide that this is the same species?
1: Hmm. In almost all of the instances, we actually went back to the type locality. We went back to the type locality For the species that were missing a sex and we found the other sex or or we did the phylogenetic analysis so you might have a population for example that's female only but that population is very closely related to a population where you have the males and then you can you can match the females and males in that way extraordinary efforts to go back to the type localities because those are very important in our study kind of knowing what that already described species is Uh, both morphologically and genetically.
0: That's the good thing about this process. You have so many different tools at your disposal. So when you don't have a same-sex type to compare it to, you can use other methods. Yep. You learned some other things from the morphological and the phylogenetic data too.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, one of the really kind of remarkable things about the genus is that you have 37 species and they're packed into that relatively small region so that's a, that's a good number of species but they never and and the genus has been in the, on that landscape for a, a reasonable amount of time right it's relatively old two species basically never occur at the same location in in kind of close sympatry or syntopy so it's, it's it's as if you had like a pane of glass and you you just dropped it on the ground and it broke, but none of the pieces are overlapping. But the problem is is that there's been enough time where the, the pieces can move back together and coexist or overlap, but that never really happens in this genus for some reason. So that's, that's really quite interesting. We still don't know exactly why that is. You know, maybe they're so ecologically similar that they can't share the exact same habitat. But that, that's a really compelling pattern. And and because we've sampled so exhaustively, we kind of know that to be true that there isn't a lot of sympatry. So that's another kind of important aspect of our extensive uh, geographic sampling. From a conservation perspective, I think that you know I think that everyone always wants to say that you know it's important to describe species because they might be conserved and et cetera et cetera. But you know, of course, we found many species that are only known from one or two places. And again, we can say that confidently because we don't done so much field work. We we kind of have their geographic distributions circumscribed. We know where they're found, and we know that they're not found in these other places because we we've been there, and we we know that other species are there. So we know for certain that some species are are very. Uh, Short range endemics they have very very small geographic distributions, right so because of that they're kind of naturally of conservation interest but the the other uh thing about these spiders is that they are they're they're kind of fragile they're very specialized in their their needs they it can't be too too warm or too cool the, the their temperature needs are very specific, and their humidity needs are also very specific so the important part about that is that uh, if there are ecological changes that kind of perturb those needs, then nesticas is going to respond to that. So, from a conservation perspective, I think they're good for uh, assessing change and kind of how, for example, climate change might impact biodiversity. And the other thing is that because we've been working on them for so long 20 30 years we we kind of already have a long-term baseline study which is important so we can you know go back we can go back now or we can go back in 10 years and look in these places and see how uh spider populations have changed in abundance in the context of maybe global climate change etc so I think in the paper we call them conservation sentinels, and I and I I actually believe that strongly that they they really are conservation sentinels because of their because of their specificity and because of their fragility.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about the naming process and why you and your co-author chose the names that you did?
1: Yeah, sure. Some of the names are uh, just names about places, Roan Mountain, the. Cane River. And some of the names are uh, honoring the indigenous people of the area, like the Cherokee. And then some of the names are just honoring people that we wanted to honor, that have inspired us in various ways. It's, it's a wonderful thing because I think the people themselves are, you know, <laughs> they enjoy the fact that you've named a species after them. They're, they are honored by that. But in fact, You know, it's 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 maybe more fulfilling for the authors than it is for the the honorees. So that's also a wonderful thing. Just because you know these various people have been so important in your lives somehow.
0: Would you be comfortable giving an example?
1: Oh, sure. I named one after my my PhD advisor at Washington University in St. Louis, Alan Templeton. Mark and I, my co-author Mark Milne, named one after. Greta Binford, who's an inspirational arachnologist and past president of the American Arachnological Society, named one after my first master student, all wonderful people that are well-deserving.
0: <laughs> I think it's really special. Um, and I, I think this paper is a, a really great example of cooperation across, you know, many years, across many field sites, um, and then also through the, the exchange of knowledge.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I've been working on this group for a long time, and this project has always been a back burner for me because I've been doing other things, but it's been so satisfying to be able to finally bring this to light.
0: And I, I love the title you chose for the paper too. Um, it's New Species in Old Mountains.
1: Yep, no, I like that as well.
0: So to close this out, um, why do you think that people should care that you're finding neat little spiders in neat places.
1: Well, I you know, I go back to the, the the idea of the conservation sentinels. And I actually, because we now know so much about the genus, you know, it has a, kind of this amazing groundwork of geographic sampling, phylogenetic knowledge, and they are so specialized that I think it, they can be conservation sentinels. I just think maybe more generally, if, if you live in some Hollow or some mountain in Southern Appalachia, and you happen to have a nesticus that's only found in that that mountain, you might find that interesting and unique. Maybe cold mountain or something like that. (laughs) Like a sense of place, you know. Like that's your that's your little cave spider.
0: I think that's really special. Mm -hmm. Marshall, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you, Zoe. Thanks for listening to me, and I also want to thank again my wonderful uh, co-author, Mark Mel.
0: Marshall Hedin's paper, New Species in Old Mountains, Integrative Taxonomy, Reveals Ten New Species and Extensive Short-Range Endemism in Nesticus Spiders from the Southern Appalachian Mountains, is in the February 3rd edition of Zoho Keys. See the episode details for a link to the paper, and to learn more about Marshall and his work, you can visit his lab website, marshallhedinlab.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of the New Species Podcast. This podcast was created by Brian Patrick and is edited and produced by Zoe Albion. If you would like to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com newspeciespodcast. And if you'd like to get in touch with questions or feedback, please email us at newspeciespodcast at gmail.com. Is there anything else that you feel like we didn't quite get to?
1: Oh, we didn't get to any fun, like, dangerous collecting <laughs> stories.
0: Do you have a story <laughs> you want to share?
1: Well, there's, there's a... So, if, if any of the listeners have, have watched the movie The Fugitive, there's a part of that movie after the bus crash where Harrison Ford's kind of scrambling around and then he walks out of a train tunnel so he that when he walks out of that train tunnel, that's actually the type locality for nesticus species, nesticus nasicus, which is cool. So, but I so I returned to that uh, type locality and walked out the train tunnel myself. I was like Harrison Ford, but but to get to that you have to walk through the train tunnel, and I was walking through the train tunnel, and uh, a couple of horrifying things happened. First, the train came and I was inside the tunnel. (laughs) So that was kind of scary. I had to like peel myself up against the cave, the train tunnel wall. But then after the train went through, I was walking along with my flashlight and kind of looking along the cave walls for, for nesticus. And then I looked up and there was a, someone had like hung a mannequin there. scare the people on the train, actually, (laughs) but that really scared me as well.
0: (laughs) The things that we do for science.
1: Yeah, no, for sure.